got a great sound to play next. Hello. Have you ever snubbed the lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Yeah. <laughs> We're on there. Can I swear? <laughs> Shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're a radio presenter. What station? Oh, no radio. I was Radio 1. Great. Okay, yeah. So, you work at Asda, right? Yeah, yeah, because I shop at Lidl. So... Just leave me alone. Why do you play the same songs every day? So do you think that I choose to play Calvin Bloody Harris three times in four hours? Because, I mean, if I had my way, it'd just be non-stop Elvis. Can you get me uncle's mate's sister's nephew a job at the radio station? Yes! Now, if they want to work for free, mainly at night and over the weekend, doing the jobs that nobody else wants to do, then, then sure, this is the kind of thing that radio professionals hear all the time. Luckily, now there's a safe place to unload and vent. It's called Crunch and Roll. Today's guest is one of the nicest men in radio. It's Jim Coulson. Now, he's worked at the Mighty Kerrang, XFM, and countless other stations over the years. And we had a great chat about some of the amazing bosses that he's worked for, and one terrible one that he holds in very low regard. Also how Gavin from Autoglass was a fan of his work, and getting sacked just after he'd bought a flat. There's plenty of swearing and some adult content. Oh yeah. Jim Coulson, how are you? Very good. Thank you very much, John. How are you? I'm uh, I'm good. When was the last time that we gazed into each other's eyes? It must have been many years ago. It'll be like nearly 20 years ago now. 18, maybe. I'm trying to remember when I left Viking. It was some kind of time in the kind of mid-2000s. You haven't aged at all. Rick, do you think that? This must be a really good filter on this, because <laughs> like two children in and my eyes like someone my wife took a picture of me the other day and it was just lines all i could see was lines <laughs> you haven't got any lines at all you look great i'll get closer to the camera oh there yes go, oh christ yeah 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 i see i see the the, the the children thing yeah i'm i'm on the same page as that mate it's uh, it's a lot of work now jim it's um it's lovely to uh, to have you on crunch and roll so thank you very much for your time can we just start by saying that um Jim and I have always had this this thing between us because I'm a whole city fan and Jim is a massive Scunthorpe United fan. And uh, when you uh, when you were a whole city fan, Hull and Scunny never really got on, did they? No. And uh, for a very short amount of time, it was quite good being a Scunny fan in that situation. There was a short amount of time when we were the most successful, but it was very short. Very, very short. I was going to say, when, when was that week? Can you remember it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I think think City didn't have a game that week, so they, you know, we, we went past them. Um, hey, you know, there was a time when we were the highest placed team in Yorkshire and the Humber, if you count that as an actual region, which people kind of do for official things, uh, when we were in the championship. I think it was like a week into the season and we'd won a game and it was the time when there were no Yorkshire teams in the uh, in the Premier League. And it's been downhill from there ever since. <laughs> Are you still doing the pitch side stuff? No. No. No, I'm not doing it. It's too depressing. No, I just when I, when I had my second kid, I was just, I was doing a job in the week. I was working on the radio at the weekend and I just, I didn't have the time. I wouldn't actually see my children at all if I went again. But now they're starting to get into the football. They're starting to enjoy going to the games. So that's quite good. Although, I don't know, they've seen some exciting games and I'm a bit worried that that's put, taken the, the level up too high and they're going to start to think, my daughter's first game, we were 3-0 down and came back to draw 3-all. 
And now my son's just seen us 2-0 down and winning 3-2. And I, it, you just have to say, it is not like that every week. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Right, let's go through your stations then, Jim. So, um, Hospital Radio in Chelmsford, Essex. Tell me about your time, because I did Hospital Radio as well, Jim. And I have interesting memories of Hospital Radio. There were some amazingly talented people there, and people that you and I ended up working with. And then... There was some absolute plums there as well. I mean, did you have, have you got any stories that you'd like to share from Hospital Radio in Chelmsford? Yes, first day, me and my mate James turned up and there was a bloke there who, he wasn't the boss, but I think he thought of himself as the boss. And the first thing he said to us as we came through the door, you know, you'd think it's a volunteer organisation, let's be nice and welcome in and get people in and get them comfortable. He was like, oh, so do you two want to make it in radio then? And we were like, yeah, yeah, he did. Well, it's never going to happen. It's what he said. <laughs> Day was. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, and, and why is that? And he just went, loads of people come here. They think they're going to go on to radio. It doesn't happen. It's never going to happen. It's too competitive. So don't even think about it. And then he walked off. I was like, oh, okay. Um, and he was the bloke who thought that he, he was absolutely livid with Mark Goodyear because he thought Mark Goodyear had stolen the idea of the, is it, was it like the living jukebox? Basically, Mark Goodyear did this thing on Radio 1 where he'd go, uh, we're going to send someone down to the record library and they'll come up with, you know, they need to go here and find this and they need to come back in however many minutes. And this bloke was doing it on hospital radio as well, but he was certain that Mark Goodyear had stolen it off him. And I... I I think it's unlikely that Mark Goodyear had purposefully put himself in hospital in Chelmsford in order to listen to what... I mean, I'm not saying ideas don't get stolen. That does happen in radio. And we've all stolen ideas, right? Am I right? Oh, yeah, yeah. One or two, one or two. But, um, yeah, like, that's what Australian radio podcasts were invented for, weren't they? So that we could (laughs) listen to them and rip them off here. Absolutely. but yeah, I don't think that Mark Goodyear did that. But the people, are, are, that's the thing, is that, yeah, you get those people who are desperate to get into radio. They love radio. They love everything about it. And then you get the people who, they've been told to do something on a Sunday to get out of the house. So there's the <laughs> bloke who came in. We had to do requests. And my patch for the requests was the terminal illness ward, which wow. I'll tell you is a, a real tough gig. But actually, you know, the people in there have got that kind of gallows humour. It's fascinating talking to them. And it's just really, it, as, I mean, as a, what, kind of 17-year-old or whatever, it's something that you've many people haven't sort of approached or experienced. And talking to those people was kind of, it was absolutely an experience. And one that I think kind of made me sort of maybe more compassionate and empathetic but there was a bloke who his pitch was the maternity uh, ward, and he just used to come back and just go, I saw about five boobs today. <laughs> Did you? Oh, yeah. Where are you? So you're from Scunthorpe originally? I'm from Scunny, lived there for quite a few years, moved to Doncaster, then moved down to Essex. Like, mum and dad just kept moving us because. And everyone goes, oh, you went to Colchester, we're an army family. No, they were teachers, but apparently there are no schools in North Lincolnshire or South Yorkshire, I don't know. So we kept moving around. So yeah, that's where I kind of got into radio was um, when I was in Essex. My friend at the time, James, was like, 
obsessed with radio. And he um, he started getting a job as a tech op on SGR in Ipswich, yeah, I think yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the time when they were doing... They were doing some networking. There were all the liner cards and stuff, but they didn't have the computer technology. So he'd sit there during the Pepsi chart or whatever it was and just have these carts to stick in and then and play the uh, like local jingle over the top. And so I'd go in and just like watch him do that for a bit sometimes. And then, yeah, I kind of got into it. We did some sort of like, well, I was going to say bedroom radio, but it was in his shed that okay. we did. Yeah. And he was so obsessed with radio that he would, we would, time it so we'd actually we'd we'd take the news as it came out of the local radio station then we'd take over (laughs) with our recording and he'd time it so that it went into the next news on the hour and that would be our hour-long radio show that we did and i really hope there are no tapes of it because i can't imagine how embarrassing it is so all of this that we're about to talk about is all james's fault yeah it's all james's fault he got me into it and um I could be doing a proper job now. I could be earning lots of money. But no, I've wasted my life in radio. <laughs> yeah, ditto, mate, ditto. Um, so then we move on to the, the Student Broadcast Network. Tell me about that. Yeah, so there's my first two sort of, I'm going to say professional jobs, were a thing called NetFM, which is, it was an internet radio station in the year 2000 when, and I know this from experience, no one had broadband, so <laughs> no one could listen to it. But... It's an internet station, right? Nowadays, you'd think you'd launch an internet station, you'd launch it in a box room in Scunny, and and that's how you'd work it. They got a four-story office on Upper Street in Islington, which must be one of the most expensive places to get property. And they thought they'd run this internet radio station that no one could listen to because no one had the capability. But, you know, they had some real talent there, right? They had uh, Annie Mack. That's where Annie Mack had her first gig. So we started We started in the November of 2000. I think it only lasted till about the April of 2001. And there was a, a bloke who was the head of Betterware who'd funded it. And the rumour was we'd spent a million pounds of his money for absolutely zero, like <laughs> nothing at all. But we, there were two rivals at the time. There was um, Bruno Brooks had an internet station. It was called Storm or something like that. And, and we had uh, NetFM. And we even had, this was the height of how, you know, I don't know who did this, but someone made like a parody site on the internet called NotFM. And they stole our graphics and they uh, they were taking the, the mick out of us. It was quite exciting that someone thought that we were as enough of a threat for people to do that. Tell me about the Student Broadcast Network as well then. This is another one of those sliding door moments. So when it all collapsed and we'd spent this million pounds of the money and the company went bust, we also, you know, sort of kept getting together, having a few drinks. We all helped each other out looking for like temporary work and stuff. And at one point when we were having a pint, Annie Mack said, oh yeah, um, the Student Broadcast Network, it's like a sustaining service for for student radio. Yeah, I've applied for a role there because there's one come up. And we were all like, oh, really? Have you? Oh, good luck with that. And then all went home to get our demos together to send to them. <laughs> and um, I, they ended up giving me afternoons and her, she just got the weekend stuff. And I was like, yes, I've got a full-time gig, £35 a show uh, in London as well. And uh, she obviously spent the time in the week, you know, getting really good, making contacts at the BBC and becoming really famous. And... <laughs> I did not. So um, <laughs> who's laughing now, Jim? Yeah, but it was a good time. It was based in Primrose Hill, so we were all earning thirty-five pound a show, which is 
very little to earn, especially in London. And um, yeah, and there were all these celebrities because Primrose Hill's really posh. So you used to go out and you'd see Gwen Stefani walking her dreadlocked dog or Finley Quay in the local pub, Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream, he was there. It was once in the, it's where I met my wife actually. And we went to the chip shop one night and this like scruffy bloke pushed past me to get around. And I was a bit like, who's that? And I just saw her like pointing at him going, and as he walked out, she was like, it's Jude Law. Wow. Really? <laughs> I bet he didn't get scraps. I bet he didn't go for the scraps. Well, I wish I'd taken more notice about what his chip shop order is, but it's it was a, a posh London chippy. There's no way they did scraps, I'm sure. <laughs> and where next then, Jim? I um, that, <laughs> that finished as well for me, and then they sold it for a pound. So there's like a like a little sort of theme of me destroying radio stations early on. And, um, and and I was just like looking desperately for work. And then there was this station in Southwest London called Thames 107.8. And they were part of the local radio company, but they were really different because this is, a, it was another like posh part of London, Kingston and Richmond and that they had this big idea that they were going to target sort of middle-class dinner party crowd. So all the music was like David Gray and Dido and just really kind of chill out music 24 hours a day. And then Rick Adams from The Big Breakfast on uh, Breakfast there as well. Wow. He was nice. <laughs> yeah, I met him a couple of times. He was lovely. Um, I did weekends. I did Sunday mornings and I did the thing you should never do, John. I did the thing you shouldn't do. Did it for free. Wow, Jim. No, I was so desperate for work. I actually did it for free. Suddenly, that thirty-five pounds a show seems quite quite nice. I know that seems like the big bucks, right? <laughs> but, um, it was weird. The boss was a, a great bloke. He's called Johnny Haywood, and he was a real like you know one of these guys who talks like this and has been around radio for many many years. And he was like fully invested in it. He really, he loved every bit of it. And he, he did say, you know, do that for free and I'll give you any cover that comes up. So one day, first time he rang me, he rang me to go, Jim, I want you to come in and do some cover, please. I want you to do this show and this is what I need. And I was like, oh, all right, mate. Okay. And he went, no, Jim, don't call me mate. Okay. I'm Johnny. You know, I'm Johnny. Talk to me like that. I'm Johnny. You're Jim. Is that okay? I went, yeah, fine, Johnny. Okay. And genuinely 100% the truth. He finished the call by going, okay, baby, see you later. Like, what? Come on. What a legend. He what? was. <laughs> he also had this big thing when you did the travel and he was like, no messing about, okay? No messing about. You, they just want to know the travel. They want to know what's happening. These are busy people. They need to know. So when you do travel, when you do news, get in there with the information, which is, you know, I mean, good advice, yeah. right? To be fair. Except that just after he told me that, I was I was driving away listening and he, he came on the radio because he did like another one of the shows. And he did the business report because obviously they thought these people need to know about stocks and shares. And he went, uh, the Dow Jones is on the up today. Not a surprise because my girlfriend's on the plane. She's going over to New York. They've heard that she's going to be spending some money. Oh, come on, Johnny. That's just what you told me not to do. 
<laughs> I love Johnny. I love him. He's brilliant. I genuinely wish I knew where he was. I've Googled him because he's just a fascinating bloke, but I just, yeah, it's nothing's come up. So if Johnny Haywood's listening, I would love to make contact again, baby. <laughs> baby, yeah. All right, so then you go to, well, the mighty Viking. So yes. um, obviously you're down in London, your parents have moved to Essex, and then you get a call from, uh, would you class Viking as your hometown station? It must be a bit of a strange one, this. Yeah, definitely, because, you know, I lived there for a while before. We'd go back to Scunny all the time, like, you know, kind of I'd go and watch the football and go and visit my grandparents and stuff like that. So it is, yeah, and that's <laughs> that's one of those moments in radio where you just send the right thing at the right time to the right person. And I think I'd tried before to get something at Viking. I thought, well, if I'm going to have a chance somewhere, it'll be there. So I um, I sent an email to the boss there at the time, a bloke called Daryl Woodman, and I just really played up the Scunny thing. I really played it up. And it just happened that there was a big change around. I think it was just after you'd gone to breakfast, maybe. Maybe, yeah. And so there was, uh, there was like people were shifting around and he gave me a couple of kind of testy kind of shows to do and uh, it didn't go well then I went away practiced a bit more and then he needed me at Christmas and when I went at Christmas I'd really tried hard and um, and I, I kind of because I'd been used to doing this chill out radio station the SBN and NetFM had both been kind of quite indie so it was a lot more kind of like let the songs finish and then you know you're not kind of being as enthusiastic or as upbeat or anything and you know hot rocking Viking FM needed someone who was going to come in and kind of like come in off the end of records and and do something exciting so I'd really tried to do that and then I did some shows over the Christmas and uh, he went right do you want to do overnights and I was like yes yes I do <laughs> uh, do you have I mean look we, we, we're very conscious that we talk to a lot of people who have been at Viking and of course it's very close to our hearts and yours I'm sure I mean do, let's just briefly touch on it do you, do you have fond memories of your time at Viking because you were doing overnights and lates weren't you yeah overnights then I went on to lates and so yeah, and I have heard some of these episodes about this the social life, and a lot of that passed me by, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I mean, you probably your, your liver was saved by the time that you were on, Jim. My liver was saved, and also the cover shows that I had to do the next day after a few of those night outs. That kind of you know that paid my rent for a while as well from a number of people who potentially couldn't turn up the next day. And also, you know, a lot of people would, two o'clock would be quite a cool time in the, in the office in the morning. Cause you'd come out of uh, the, uh, the studio and there would be like four or five people who'd just been out in hull all night. I mean, you couldn't make much sense out of them, but um, they were there anyway. <laughs> there is certainly a running theme about Viking and that be very much a youth club. That's how I remember it. it it really was. And it's it's really odd because because um, I went back to Viking later in my career. I went back to do breakfast a yeah. uh, number of years later. And it's it was lovely and it was nice and the people were nice, but it was not the same as it had been back then. Because, you know, when I, when I went there first time, it was 24 hours a day live, wasn't it? So you had loads of presenters, you had producers. So there were so many people who were there just, you know, reasonably young, living their life in Hull, having a good time. And um, and then, yeah, everything had shrunk down a bit by the time I went back. And also I was traveling 75, 70 miles either way when I went back to do breakfast. So I wasn't going to get drunk. Is this going out or is it just in our headphones? The hamster's fine. <laughs> it was a technical problem. You heard something on air you shouldn't have done. Oh, yeah. 
And then, um, I mean, for me, you've got some really big hitters on your CV, Jim, but you go to Kerrang! And uh, one of the episodes recently, we, we chatted to a man who's got a lot of love for you, actually, Dan Morfitt. And of course, he was at Kerrang! as well. And um, I, I'll say the same to you as I did to Dan. For me, being part of EMAP and just watching what you guys at Kerrang! did, it was a great station. An, an, an amazing station, wasn't it? Yeah, it was brilliant. It was just something completely different in the market and the production as well. The production team were just so good, like so hot on it. They had kind of comedians writing for them. Uh, They wrote these kind of sketches and that's it. You'd have like, rather than just like a little bit of production or something, you'd have a, like a minute sketch between songs and it would just be genuinely funny. And the, the problem that they kind of had was that Kerrang as a, a brand previously, the magazine was really hardcore but obviously it was on FM in the West Midlands, so they couldn't really make it system of a down all day. Mm. So, you know, we were playing Snow Patrol, which you wouldn't get in <laughs> in the magazine. So in a way, I think kind of some people in who would listen to it on FM would be a bit scared going, oh, I hope it's not really loud. And then some people who like the magazine would be like, oh, they'd listen to it and they'd go, what the hell are the Hoosiers doing? As I believe Dan was he talking did. about. He isolated the Hoosiers as well. What's going on with you Kerrang boys? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We all sat there slating the Hoosiers. But no, it was great because they had, you know, the, the t- it was so good at getting people in. So I'd be on air in an afternoon and there'd be James Dean Bradfield from the Manic Street Preachers doing a gig like kind of five metres from where I was standing. And it was... Yeah, it was pretty special. And they owned all these gigs. They had, you know, kind of all the big bands coming in. And then they put on these amazing shows in uh, in Birmingham. And if you're the sort of person who loves, you know, that kind of music, then it was just like it was at a very, very good time. It was amazing. And yeah, I, I should probably repay the favour. Dan was brilliant as well. Okay, just put that in yeah, well, just it, because well, it feels like I need to. Edit that bit out. Um, <laughs> how did you get the job for Kerrang then? How did you go from Viking to Kerrang? In a way, it was another kind of fortunate moment. But like a few months earlier, maybe like a year earlier, we'd been talking about The Late Show. And The Late Show was Sunday till Thursday night. And Sunday night was just dead. Like Rajar said, no one's listening. Don't even bother with this. So they were like, well, is there anything you want to do with Sunday nights that we're not doing now that you could just mess about with? And I was like, yeah, I'd like to do an indie show, please, and play some local artists, which is how I got them. I was like, yeah, I'll play some local artists, but also just like the tunes I like as well. (laughs) Um, And so they let me do this thing called the Sunday Session. And we'd have like bands in, local bands would come in. And like a lot of people, Hull has that reputation, right, doesn't it? It For people who haven't been there, they think about it as being kind of a dour place. But the music scene in Hull is absolutely amazing. And we'd have some great bands in and then, you know, others from kind of Scunny and Grimsby and Barton and places like that. And they'd come in and do that. And so I got quite a good sort of demo together of that sort of thing. And I kind of had my eye on XFM or Kerrang. So I just tended to send out demos every so often. And then there was a time when this would be my, if this magazine still existed and if there were still jobs in radio, I would have this as my expert tip, which is look to see who's just got a new job and then send them an email with a congratulations and your demo. <laughs> and that's what I did. So that's, that's what I've, I've got a couple of jobs like that. Uh, but it was Adam Utman who got the job at Kerrang. And I just noticed it in the radio magazine. Remember that oh, do, from yeah. back in the day? I think I had a subscription at one point because I was desperate for work. It was really expensive for what you got. <laughs> 
can I pay you lots of money for you to advertise a lot to me and not give me very much content? Brilliant. <laughs> so very fond memories of Kerrang. And I'm guessing, do you live in Birmingham? You moved to Birmingham as well. Yeah, moved to Birmingham, and I don't think I'd ever been to Birmingham before. But yeah, that was an exciting city, and I I bought a flat just before the financial crash, and I still own that flat because I can't afford to sell it. So <laughs> the joy of radio, everyone. <laughs> it is rock and roll. Now, Jim, um, Kerrang! When you were there, it had it was a stellar lineup, wasn't it? It was it was a huge station. Oh, it was absolutely massive. It had. Uh, they'd got Ugly Phil over from Australia yeah. to do breakfast. And that was like, they had a, I think their remit at breakfast was like one song every half an hour. And him and Rachel knew and uh, Tim, who was the sort of extra character on the show, they were just, they bossed it. They were so good. And like, they'd just do this outrageous stuff at breakfast. Because, you know, everyone talks about Tim Shaw and Tim Shaw show was amazing it was really good and you could you know he just did anything that he wanted to but to be able to do that at breakfast to really push the boundaries and get away with it on fm is like it's just amazing just really good and uh yeah that was well worth listening to what kind of things did ugly phil do because i i always remember the name and i always remember that you know that he was this this kind of and i hate to use the phrase shock jock but he i mean some of the things he did were just nuts weren't they he would say ridiculous things he'd purposefully persuade people to kind of come down and argue with him and he would he didn't mind kind of that kind of real confrontation that's never been my style of radio i've always been like just when to make you happy can i make you happy please <laughs> but he would just say purposely outrageous and stupid stuff he would ring up um so he'd do this my favorite of their sort of prank calls was the one where they would ring up a record shop and ask for songs by bands that didn't exist that got increasingly increasingly stupid but you know there's a point where you know let's just leave it now we've done it the joke's gone just keep going on and on and on and like for as long as they would hang on the phone and if they would just stay on it would just go on for minutes and minutes and minutes when any normal presenter would have just gone probably probably just we'll round this one up a bit now and that's it <laughs> it just would really kind of he'd get this sort of joy out of really really winding people up and it was fantastic when you were at Kerrang, did you realize you were part of something special yeah it was it it just sounded great and it it was something that people got obsessed with because you know most people listen to the radio and it's a really passive thing but you get people who are really into it people who are kind of like they properly hang on your word and they'll remember everything that you talk about even just doing afternoons which is not ever like the most engaging of shows that's one that you've got some work to do it's just on in the background but people would really get into it and one of my listeners was uh this is a bit of a name drop for you Gavin from Autoglass. I don't know if you remember those adverts. <laughs> he was he was a brummy lad, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And he listened on FM whereas he was driving around in his Autoglass uh, van. He'd listen <laughs> and he'd get involved with everything. He'd come on, he'd kind of do appearances and stuff and he did those. He just absolutely loved everything about it and got really obsessed. That's my... Uh, my most celebrity fan. Oh, except Jeremy Beadle used to listen to my show on NetFM once. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Because <laughs> the boss was trying to get him in to do a show. He came in once. It was one of the worst things that's ever happened. And the the boss and the, uh, well, the, the couple of bosses were up in his office, like just making up fake email addresses to send in questions because no one was listening to the radio at the time. <laughs> just with regards to Gav from uh, Gavin from Autoglass. So when he first called you, did he did he introduce himself as Gavin from Autoglass, or did you manage to get that out of him? 
No, he didn't. He was just Gav who got in contact a few times. And then we put on a gig at, um, I think, the Barfly in Birmingham. And he won tickets for it. And I think he was trying to chat up. I think this was before he was in a relationship. Just better check that. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was trying to chat up uh, one of the producers. And uh, I think he definitely used as part of his chat up no, line. No, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming from <laughs> Wow. Because she... And she came in the next day. She's like, you know, Gav, who texts in all the time. It's Gavin from Autoglass. And, you know, it was the height of his Autoglass fame at the time. And then from Kerrang, where'd you go next? Well, I got binned from Kerrang for no real reason. Well, um, was, was there a reason, Jim, or was there really no, no reason? The reason was, well, I'm going to change. We need to get rid of a daytime show. See you later. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things where you get told it and you're like, oh, I couldn't really have done anything about that, could I? Because the radar was really good. All right. Yeah. It was. Because, I mean, I'd like to think partially because of me, partially because the audience was probably just waking up at midday when I started. But that doesn't matter. (laughs) I'll take in those figures and I'm running with them. When there are decisions made that you can understand, you're okay with it. When there's decisions made, it's just like, arbitrarily, I'm getting rid of you. You think, I've just bought a flat, mate. And (laughs) I'm really... Could really do without this, but <laughs> yeah. Did you not? Did, is that how? Is that how you responded to that? I could really do without this, mate. I think I probably did. I don't know. You'd have to. You'd have to ask. Uh, uh, well, Gordon Davison, who did it, actually on that, Gordon got rid of me from Kerrang, and he made that decision. Then years later, I, I started at Viking, and there was uh, in typical Bauer style. Uh, the boss who brought me in within a few weeks went to the bank and never came back in uh, that kind of like <laughs> way that happens. <laughs> they just let him change breakfast show and change the music policy. And then they got rid of him before either of them had had a chance to start. Um, but because we didn't have a boss, I got a call one day going, right, we're getting a consultant coming in tomorrow and he's going to be working with you until we get a new PD. I was like, oh, okay, right. Who is it? <laughs> Gordon Davidson. I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be awkward. He got rid of me like five years ago or three years ago, however long it was. But actually, as it turned out, um, that's kind of some of the best radio I've ever made is when it was me and Rosie Madison on the show yeah, and yeah. Kenny, Kevin Paver the uh, as the producer and the three of us would do the show we'd go into a room with Gordon afterwards for an hour or so and we'd just like throw ideas at each other and it was just like it was the most creative thing and it was brilliant and I think you know we made some absolutely kind of cracking radio at that time so it worked out in the end after we'd had an awkward chat on his first day in the office where we went yeah okay it's a bit weird isn't it should we just forget about the bit where I got rid of you <laughs> Oh, I hate those moments. Oh, it's, it's see, just... you're, you are, and I, I would, I'm trying to think, nobody to me has ever said a bad word about you because all people say is you're such a nice person. Whereas I, uh, many moons ago, was a stupid drunk and I used to regrettably <laughs> say silly things to people. And when the similar situations happen to me where someone's come back around, I'm like, oh no, why did I call him a bell end to the face? I really <laughs> <Yeah>. regret that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Because it's such a small industry. It's like a teeny tiny industry and it can work in your favor sometimes because you can have someone who uh, you really like and works with you well, who will give you a job wherever they go. But also, if you make an enemy, yeah. then... Yeah, yeah, he'll bite you in the ass <laughs> at some it. point, without a shadow. So uh, we've kind of skipped over. So you went to Hallam FM. Yeah, so this is... I know you've got him as a guest on another episode, the lovely Simon Monk, who, before I went to Kerrang, I'd done a... I'd sort of applied for a job with him at Wyvern, and I'd gone and done a show with him, and he enjoyed it. He liked it. And he offered me drive, but I had Kerrang sort of on the back burner. And I was a bit like, eh, I, no, I'm sorry, no. And you hate to turn down jobs because I was, I mean, I was doing late and I was enjoying it, but you just want to do daytime, don't you? Yeah, like, yeah. that's the thing. And I wanted to do daytime and I was willing to move to Worcester to do daytime. But, yeah, so I had to kind of turn it down because actually the Kerrang thing really came in and I really that was the thing I was kind of dead set on doing. But as soon as Kerrang got rid of me, I uh, I emailed him and went, Simon, can you help? <laughs> yeah, well, what's this a lovely place, isn't it, this time of the year? <laughs> yeah, but it's okay because he'd moved to Hallam then and I was quite up for going back to Yorkshire. Well, so, Sheffield, um, yeah, mighty, um, an amazing city, Sheffield as well. So how long were you at Hallam for then, Jim? Basically, I was freelancing. So I was, do I was doing Saturday afternoons, and Sunday evenings with him and then doing loads of cover as well, which was really good. So it was about a year. But at the same time, I'd moved out of Birmingham down to London to be with my then girlfriend, now wife, and just move in her flat and not pay any rent, which was excellent. Um, while someone paid the rent on my flat. And I was also working at XFM doing Sunday breakfast and Q Radio doing like it was the q magazine radio thing so my week was basically monday to friday afternoon nothing friday, just watching telly yeah. i watched a lot of top gear i don't even like top gear i don't like cars <laughs> but i was just sitting there watching top gear for days on end um then friday afternoon i'd have to go into q radio with rick blacksell who was ace he was really lovely and record like a week's worth of shows there then Saturday morning, jump in the car, drive from London to Sheffield, do the show, drive back Saturday evening, do Sunday breakfast in Leicester Square at XFM, then come back to have some lunch, then drive up to Sheffield and go and do the show and come back uh, Sunday night and come back to London to sit and watch more Top Gear for a week. Jesus wept, Jim. No. Imagine if that was now as well with petrol prices. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about XFM because that was a, a, a very special um, station. So how did you end up getting the gig there? Because it was Sunday breakfast, as you say, and a bit of daytime cover as well. Yeah. Uh, and that was another, it's who you know, side thing. <laughs> so Adam Utman from Kerrang! had gone down to XFM. And I was pestering him probably once every three days or something because XFM is the station that I'd listened to when I'd been in London before because I'd been in Essex. I'd been able to hear some of the early stuff when it was like proper indie and it was, you know, before it was bought and it was just, they were playing all sorts throughout the day and it was just an iconic station for me. So I was just kept pestering and pestering him and eventually just went, do you want to do Sunday mornings? I was like, yes, yes, I do, please, <laughs> Adam. That would be lovely. Um, and it just felt really special to be on that station. It's absolutely massive uh, for what it is as well. For an indie station, it was really big. Um, and then, yeah, I did daytimes. I got to cover the show that Kevin Greening used to do about five or six years before that. And that it, he, he was 
through other periods of unemployment, he was like a proper soundtrack. He was the person I'd get up and I'd listen to him and I feel better about the day because I think he's a, he was just an exceptional broadcaster and he was so good on XFM. And I was doing that show for a couple of weeks that he'd done and that felt pretty special. And then I did Music Response as well, which is the new music show in the evening that Zane Lowe had done before and wow. Steve Harris had done. And that was, yeah, that felt really good. Although it meant I missed going to see Bruce Springsteen at the Emirates Stadium, but, you know. Do you win some, you lose some. Exactly. I mean, forgive me, I know you did uh, a few shows on Thames 107.8, baby. Um, but obviously you've done shows <laughs> right across, the, you know, across England. I mean, is there something special about doing shows in London? Yeah, it feels really, really like you're right at the centre of stuff. It's, you know, when you do like a travel work, I worked in East Lancashire and the travel reports are, you know, there's a donkey on the road near <laughs> Barn Oldswick. Uh, but, you know, you just, you're actually, you're there and people are in the capital and it's, it, there's a lot going on and you're right at the centre of it and you're kind of part of that cultural life of London, which is exciting, although I was desperate to leave after a while and I'm really glad I live back in Yorkshire now. But um, it was, yeah, is there's something really different. And also when you're walking through Leicester Square at five o'clock on a Sunday morning, it's a real experience. And I mean, I survived. I bet lots of people haven't. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, so, um, you know, you're doing Hallam, you're doing Q, you're doing XFM, and I mean, you're working every hour of the weekend, um, you know, which is what most dedicated presenters have to do at some point. And then you go to breakfast on 2BR. Tell me about 2 because Dan Morfitt mentioned 2BR as well. Yeah, it's this little station in East Lancashire. Uh, it, was, it was also part of the local radio company at the time. And they just needed a breakfast show presenter and we were looking to move out of London and I just wanted like a full-time gig again and we knew exactly where we wanted to live so basically I was just looking for jobs that were within like a kind of 30 mile radius of where we wanted to live and this one came up and I got in contact with them and it was the, the tiniest station I mean I guess Thames was tiny but I didn't really work there full-time this is the tiniest station I've ever worked at. And I went in and met them and it was fascinating. The boss there was a bloke called, I don't know if you've heard of him, called Ricky Kirby. No. You might have heard him on the radio. I think he did things like um, Century. Yeah, I think so. I think he did Century. And he, uh, he had this amazing voice. He talks like this. <laughs> I'm Ricky Kirby. How you doing? And he was just the boss of this station and he he like loved it. He ran it and he had all these sort of sayings. So you'd listen to him and it, when they had the 12 o'clock news, he'd come back out and do the weather. He'd go, as Dave was talking, we went from Monday morning to Monday afternoon. Welcome to Tubiar. <laughs> and he also, when he had a string of songs, he'd go out for a fag and he'd come back in and just go, oh, I've just been outside for a fresh breath of Marlborough air. <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was brilliant he's like no one else i've ever met and he was just like a proper professional proper old school and he loved what i did which was really nice and um you know i remember he, he introduced me and the first sort of time i went there and met everyone he went this is jim he's done some big radio stations god knows why he's here and it's like well because <laughs> i need a job that's why i'm here but <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> that was your first breakfast gig. Did you ever see yourself? I know you've done Sunday breakfast at XFM, but full time breakfast gig. Did you ever see yourself as a breakfast presenter? 
Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. That was kind of, that was up there. That was like one of the ambitions because that's, you know, so get where you get to be the most creative. And that's what I'd always wanted to do. And that's what I liked about doing lates and overnights. You've got a bit more freedom to mess around and kind of come up with some silly ideas, but there's just not as many people listening or interacting. So breakfast, what I wanted to do. And it was, it was good. It was like a one person breakfast. So it was quite hard work and there was a lot more music than normal, but they just basically, you know, he said to me, just do what you want to do. If you want to change a song, just change the song, play what you like. As long as you're passionate about it, just do it. And that was really nice. And I think because the local radio company were looking for a way out, they didn't bother. They weren't. They didn't care at all. So there's this, this station in East Lancashire doing what it wanted. And that was good fun. And then it got bought by UKRD, who um, people have this kind of perception of them, like, like an almost kind of cult-like thing. And it, in a way it kind of is, but it was, it was a really sort of nice experience. You know, when there's a takeover, you just, you worry for what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. They were kind of the opposite. They were like, Hey, everything's cool. We're cool. There are all these like people based down in Cornwall and they all had this sort of way about them. That's just like, Hey, we're just here for you. We're here to support you. We're going to do this. And that this really sort of nice attitude that, you know, we have a breakfast boot camp, and they'd just be like, It'd be sort of things that I'd never heard before where, uh, you know, like people have this problem with prize pigs and they try and get rid of them and stop them. And their attitude was like, they're the people who, if they get a rage, our diary, you're going to kill it. So encourage them, like send them Christmas cards, get, you know, ring them up and talk to them. Also, they're going to be the people you can call. You can call them and say, look, we're talking about this today. Do you want to talk to me? Because that's the problem when you do breakfast. You just need that interaction, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And if you're just leaving it to chance, that's a worry. But yeah, it's a good idea. If you've got all these people's numbers, I mean, I don't know how it works with GDPR now, but this was before that. Uh, then yeah, just give them a ring. Just go, look, we're going to talk about this. If you've got anything to say, let me record you and I'll play it in tomorrow. I'll tell you what, it's quite refreshing to hear that for a, for, for a takeover of a, of, of a company. I've never heard a story like that. Normally it's uh, you lot, you're out, see you later. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we all thought for a good six months. <laughs> but actually, yeah. they kept coming going, what is their game? But they they were really set on um, winning the, you know, the Sunday Times best company to work for thing. And they, they, they got nominated or they got in there every year. They got a commendation every year. And you could tell because... Uh, it wasn't kind of freelance at the time. It was uh, it was a uh, like a contract, an employed contract. And every time, just before the voting happened, they'd give you something else. Like they'd go, "Oh, by the way, you're just doing five days a week now. Just you know, remember that when the voting comes round, or we're going to give you a little pay rise." Or <laughs> so, um, how long were you at Two BR for then, Jim? Three years. So I did three years on breakfast wow. there. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, it was good. They moved studios. It's a hassle when you have to move studios when you're in a radio station. But the one that they had was like a leaking old mill. So that's not good. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was, it was kind of, it was fine. The money wasn't great. It, obviously, I'd like to have been somewhere bigger, but it was like a decent gig and the people were really nice. Um, but then, yeah, I was, um, I was just looking for something else. And um, and Viking was one of those stations where I was kind of pitching myself to. Um, but the boss at the time was friends with my program director. And um, and she'd said, oh, yeah, uh, he came over the other week to, for a chat. He was listening to you and, and I'd been doing this Saturday show. And, you know, 
if you have to do a six show of the week when you do breakfast, the Saturday show is rubbish, <laughs> always rubbish, because you don't get, you're there to fulfill your contractual obligation. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I might have just scuppered my chances of ever getting there. But then like out of the blue, uh, a few months later, he got in contact and just said, look, we're looking at changing breakfast. I know you're from Scunny and, you know, I like what you do. Do you want to come and have a chat? And, uh, and yeah, got back to Viking to do breakfast. Yeah. Imagine doing breakfast at Viking, John. Imagine. I can, I can only dream. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it was a very special place was Viking. So you, you, you mentioned her before, but you teamed up with Rosie who, I mean, she had, I mean, she's lovely. I'd have met Rosie a couple of times and she really is genuinely a really nice person. Her, and her and Danny do an amazing show as well, uh, at Pulse. But, um, so, because Rosie had a bit of a, wasn't she the receptionist? And please correct me if I'm wrong, because she'll hate me. But wasn't she the receptionist at Galaxy? And then Hursty got her on air, and then she came to you. Is that how it worked? So, yeah, I think she was receptionist at Galaxy, went on air with Hursty, then went to KCFM, right, okay. I think, yeah. and did some stuff there. Uh, and then, yeah, went to, went to do breakfast with Paul Foster at, at Viking. Oh, yeah, Paul Foster. And, yeah, and then... Um, uh, who's another great presenter? Yeah. Let's let's give Paul Foster some love. I think someone has someone previously given Paul Foster some love. He's um, great. It would it would have been me because I I thought he was one of the best music jocks I'd ever heard on the radio. I thought he was superb. But anyway, yeah. So then you get to do breakfast. I mean, so tell me about your time at Viking doing breakfast. Well, it was it was uh, crazy <laughs> because it's Bauer. So. Uh, you know, it, it's never straightforward. So as I said, you know, I started doing breakfast at Viking. We lost our PD within a couple of months. We got Gordon in, what was amazing. It was, he was, you know, that was a really kind of positive time. And, you know, we started to make some headway with figures and stuff like that. But then he finished his tenure. I think we had three other people come in like about three or four different changes of music over that time. And eventually uh, we were saddled with a person that I will not name, but who I believe was my worst ever boss. Okay. Just <laughs> for what reasons? I think it was beyond him, the job. He also, he had some very set ideas that were nothing to do with the, the group's ideas. So you'd have this like Bauer love, like a, a management layer thing going on so you'd have your local pd we had a regional pd we had a group pd and the group pd and the regional pd were kind of on the same page and then our pd was just right off it so he'd say for one of the things was like never sell the music don't sell the music people don't want to know about the music and it's like well that's not what your boss is saying who do i listen to <laughs> here yeah yeah and, you know, it, it, you just it'd ring constantly, constantly on the XD. You go, no, don't do that. No, don't do that. And it's like, oh, God, okay, fine. And there was one point where we had this, we were doing this storyline where there was, um, you know, the boxer Luke Campbell, who yeah, won his, um, yeah, yeah. he's a whole lad. He'd won his Olympic gold and he was doing his first professional fight. And on the bill was another whole lad called Tommy Coyle, yeah. who we became really good friends with. And he came and did a lot of stuff on the show and, he was going to do something for cash for kids. We wanted him to get a tattoo of the cash for kids logo on his bum. And then the big twist was that it was Rosie that was going to do it on his bum. Uh, and you know, that was the thing. That was the funny thing yeah, is yeah. that, you know, if you're getting a professional tattoo artist, it isn't a thing. That's just a boring, boring thing that happens getting the, and 
I love Rosie, but I will say incompetent, I imagine, with a tattoo gun. I don't know for sure, but I imagine <laughs> <laughs> to do it. That's the twist. That's what makes the story interesting. That's what gives you the tension. That gives you the kind of um the the uh, the, the kind of wondering whether it's going to go wrong or not that gives you that but uh, he came in and went oh, no I, I just wanted you to get the tattooist to do it and it's like well why do you think that and he wouldn't say it's like why and eventually it was because the head of sales had said that would be better and he, he he couldn't explain the answer because he didn't know the answer he was just saying what he'd been told so we had a chat that week with the group program director who came in and and we were like, just hypothetically, if you were doing this storyline, <laughs> would you have Rosie do the tattoo or the tattooist? And he was like, Rosie, obviously, that's the funny thing. I was like, yeah, go and tell your mate. And uh... <laughs> so yeah, and another thing that that same boss did was ruined a great Viking institution, and it's one. John, that you started, you know, the Brid Bash. Yeah, I used to love doing that. Well, that was where I sang Is This the Way to Amarillo with Tony Christie live on stage and had fish and chips with Charlene Spiteri. It was amazing. Yeah, go on. So the Brid Bash was this thing that we did. It was every year and it was the big Viking FM gig in uh, Bridlington at the Spa, which is a beautiful venue. And you get a load of great acts and they all come along and a few people who've been on that year's X Factor as well. And people love it. They go crazy for it and you get to host it and it's just loads of fun. And we did one. First year I was doing Breakfast at Viking, we did one and it went really well. It was absolutely brilliant. Second year we had this boss who'd come in and he was uh, keen to do something different. So what he decided to do was just have one big band playing and it was JLS and they'd been away for a while and he decided JLS were going to just do the Brid Bash and that was going to be it and we'd sell it as a big gig. And we were all set to reveal it. You know, all of the press releases had gone out embargoed until the morning. We're going to do it eight o'clock on this morning. This is what's going to happen with the Brid Bash. It's going to be different. It's going to be amazing. Two hours before we do the announcement, get a call going, uh, hold off on the announcement. What? Yeah. Yeah, we we actually, although we, we agreed it verbally with JLS, um, we've not actually got anything written down. It's like, what? Okay, uh, so what do we do at eight o'clock? You just have to say, oh, just wing it, is what, you know, when people get in that situation, they're like, I'm passing this problem on to you. So we, we came up with something like, oh, there's some exciting developments. We've not quite been able to sort it out yet, but because we want to give you the big, big news. So we'll do it again tomorrow. Problem being, they'd sent all these press releases out. They were embargoed until eight o'clock on whatever morning it was. So all of the local newspapers and websites and stuff all went, JLS coming to Bridlington. And on air, none of us were allowed to say anything. And people were ringing, they were texting, they were going, JLS are coming, amazing. Can we get some tickets for it? And we'd have to just go, well, just, we'll give you the details at some other point. And then the next day, it was like, right, we're doing it at eight o'clock. No, no, we can't. They're still not done it. And like a week later... They just had to admit it was never going to happen. And we had to make like an announcement going, apologies, it's not happening. Oh We're not going to be able to God. do the Brid Bash this year. And it was because this bloke had just taken it in his mind that he could do it. He could take it his own route. He didn't think to listen to the other people, the other music experts in the group. He decided he was going to do that. And it was, yeah. But he's, he's just one of, that's the sort of bloke he was. He also, he was desperate to be on air. I absolutely desperate but all the other PDs and his bosses were like no you're a PD now you can't be on air so he decided he'd do this 
quiz show one Sunday when there was he couldn't get any cover, surprisingly. He'd not rung anyone to cover. <laughs> and they did this like two hour long abomination of a radio show. And it was I mean, there might well have been people from the office sending in fake messages in order to trip him up, but I can't confirm that. Absolutely, 100%. But the the worst thing about that was, and it was awful, and he was insulting listeners and, oh, it was horrible. The worst thing about that was, out of the two years I did breakfast at Viking, our marketing budget was about 50 mugs with Jim and Rosie on them. That's it, 50 mugs. The marketing bill for his show that he'd done for one time for two hours was about the same. I think he had about 40 mugs made up for this show that didn't even exist. And that almost the same level of marketing as his main breakfast show. Oh, my word. Uh-huh. So two years at Viking and then, and then you go to Pulse. Pulse One. Yeah. Not my choice to leave Viking, um, but this boss... Uh, has well somewhere up and down the chain it was decided they didn't want me anymore so there we go so you move on again i'm not i am bitter actually i'm really bitter but anyway it's nine years ago let it go because you know um the, my daughter was being first daughter was being born and before she was born my, i knew my contract was up in a few weeks i just said look can we sort this out before i go on paternity yeah yeah no problem no problem they never did came back three days after coming back from paternity leave they went <laughs> We're not renewing your contract. See you later. That is horrible. <laughs> that is horrible, mate. Just, yeah. So I didn't have a job. Uh, I went and I had no money. So I went and worked at a place where they consult on turf. Did you? Did you? Did you say turf? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that was like literally no other radio jobs, nothing doing. So I found this job where they're the world's expert in turf. <laughs> so so how, how did you get the gig at Pulse to save you from the world of turf? This is another thing that happened because I found out that Jackie Blay had just been made head of presentation and I, sent, I did the same trick as I did with Kerrang. I just sent her, oh, congratulations, here's my demo. And she went, oh, yeah, come in and we'll talk about some stuff. And, and Pulse One was a, a kind of a cracking station. It really, well, it, it still is. It still exists. It's one of the few that still exists and it's going well. It is a good station. And I've mentioned them before, but Danny and Rosie do a cracking job on breakfast. Got a lot of love for those guys. Um, and you do, you do bits of cover throughout your career at Key 103, Galaxy Northeast. Uh, I mean, you've worked at some, some amazing stations. And I often ask the question, do you have any regrets? No, I don't. I guess I don't in some ways because if I had any, if I changed anything about my career, my life now would be different. And I, you know, and I've got a good life and I enjoy what I do now. Um, I think in some ways I could have been a bit more sociable and a bit more of a networker because I think some of the gigs that I lost maybe were because I didn't really schmooze very much mm. but you know you live and learn don't you um and sometimes you don't want to schmooze with certain people so i think it's probably all right well, but no i don't think so like i had a good career I'd, I'd, i mean i wish that the uh, viking breakfast had gone on for longer because i think we were doing some good stuff but it wasn't to be was it and alex and uh 
these various presenters that he has with him on that show over the course of the last few years done a really good job so fair play to him well you're doing very well there Jim you actually sounded quite sincere when uh, not many people can do that when they talk about a show that someone that's taken over a show and actually sound like they actually mean it oh, that's well done mate oh yeah it's, it's not not like radio presenters is it to be not bitter but I mean you know we're, we're on this is this is technically doing the show this is as soon as I put this down I'll be like oh my god <laughs> That fox is an absolute rod. <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing about um, about going to Pulse was that then, yeah, Rosie and Danny came together and did that show, and it was it was like seeing your ex wife with a new husband. It really oh yeah, was. I didn't even that didn't even cross my mind. Yeah, that must yeah. have felt weird. It was a bit strange, and yeah, they're annoyingly good, as you say. So uh, I can't even be upset about it. You know, they, you know, they're I, making great radio. Forgive me, Jim. I've laboured that point a couple of times now, and I didn't even cross my mind that it might actually upset you. So I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but they are quite good. You know, but you were good with Rosie as well. So there we go. And and Jim, I'm intrigued. So what are you doing now? Uh, I write for people's websites, and I do a bit of kind of video stuff and blogging and things for people. Just anything people will pay me to do. Um, sometimes it's really interesting. I work for a few dads groups, so the Dads Net and Dadless Soul, but also sometimes it's kind of less interesting when I'm writing about retail displays. But you know, you have to take the rough with the smooth, don't you? <laughs> and are you still doing stand up? Because I remember you did quite a bit of stand up. Yeah, no, I've not done it because sort of doing late ruined that for a bit, and then doing breakfast ruined it for a bit. So I've not done as much of that really. Um, but I would like to get back into it because it is, you know, that's a great experience. Because the problem with radio is that you can say something and you have no idea how it's hit <laughs> outside of those four walls, yeah. unless you can see through to the office. And sometimes you see people laughing and you're like, okay, that's good. But then if you look through to the office and you see like stony faces, you're like, oh, well, that's no good at all. <laughs> you can get in your head. But yeah, with stand up, you know whether it's been funny or not straight away. And when it's funny, when it has worked, it's like an amazing feeling. But um, it's quite a lot of effort. You have to try really hard. And I don't know if I'm up for that, to be honest. <laughs> and, and just finally, Jim, before I thank you and say I love you and, uh, and I appreciate your time being on Crunch and Roll, I, I, we always end the, the podcast with our guests doing, the, doing their best voiceover voice. Have you done any voiceover work? I'll have you know, I was the voice of Q magazine for about four months. So, wow. Okay. So know, we're in the presence of royalty, voiceover royalty. Yes, exactly. Well, Jim, thank you very much for your time. And um, it's lovely catching up with you and uh, going through your career. It's, uh, it's been lovely to see you on Zoom. And um, if you'd be so kind to take us away with your best voiceover with the out credits. You've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Jim Coulson. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app to get every new episode when it drops. Crunch and Roll is a 969 media production presented by John Fox and produced by Simon Bush. Bush. No, I'm joking. I do really know his name. I'm friends with him. <laughs> <laughs>